if we were to see a child running down a hill as fast as they could with their shoelaces untied, what would you expect to happen? If uh, a fair-skinned person, uh, maybe like many of us here, were to go on a Caribbean cruise for an entire week without any sunscreen, what would you expect to happen? If a two-year-old was left in a room alone with markers and paint, what would you expect to happen to those walls? How about the Messiah and King triumphantly entering into Jerusalem? What do you expect to happen? All of us have different expectations for the different situations we find ourselves in in life. And many times, our expectations are relatively met. But there are times when our expectations get subverted. What I mean by that is there are times when things happen unexpectedly or the way we don't plan on. This happened to me a number of years ago, one of those situations. I woke up early on a Saturday morning to go play some pickup basketball. And when I got to the gym, I noticed there was a sign on the door. And uh, in my own selfishness, I was like, I hope that it didn't get canceled because I really need the workout. And so I walk up to this door and there is a note posted. And it says, so, once again, it says, so John Morgan's 100th birthday celebration has been canceled. So me being the eternal optimist, I'm like, oh, I wonder if it's just a scheduling conflict, uh, maybe just a little postponed. But then I read the rest of the note. The way that you feel conflicted, that's how I felt in that moment too. It's like, maybe not the best way to announce that. Um, Needless to say, my, sub, my expectations were subverted. I, I came up to this message thinking that maybe it was about playing basketball. Then I came up to think, oh, there's a celebration of uh, 100 birthday. And then, whoops, I guess not. Um, it's easy for us to let our expectations uh, dictate or manipulate what we think is going to happen. But there's also those moments where we're caught so off guard that we don't know what to think or what to expect. We see a similar theme as we study Luke's account of the triumphant entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. We see this theme of expectations being subverted. We see a theme of celebration that would turn to tragedy. Our passage today comes from Luke Chapter 19, verses 28 through 44. Our scripture reader for today is Marvin Barnes. So Marvin, would you mind making your way to the podium? Uh, here at TVRC, we believe that scripture should be central to what we do. It's the primary lens to which we live our lives. So would you all stand with me uh, so that we can practice that here this morning? And Marvin, whenever you're ready, you can start reading. After Jesus has said this, he went ahead going up to Jerusalem as he approached Bethphage and Bethany at the hill called Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples saying to them, go to the village ahead of you and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which has never been ridden. Untie it and bring it here. And if anyone asks, 
why are you untying it? Say, the Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead went and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, why are you untying the colt? They replied, the Lord needs it. They brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt, and put Jesus on it. As he went along, the people spread their cloaks on the road. When he came near the place where the road goes down to the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, if even you had known that on this day what would bring you peace, but now it's hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and your children, within the walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. Thank you, Marvin. You can all be seated. Luke's account of this triumphant, ent triumph uh, triumphant entry has a theme of subverted expectations. Throughout the story, we see a number of situations uh, that the way things go in the story are not the way maybe we or the characters in the story would have thought they go. Our passage is titled, Jesus Comes to Jerusalem as king. Typically, when a victorious king would, would come riding into a city that it had just conquered, the king would be riding a horse. And this horse represented power. It represented uh, this conquering king, military might. This king would parade himself through the town with his citizens and his, and his military around him. It was a grand scene. One of the expectations that the Jews had for their Messiah was that he would be one of a political or national nature. That he would help them fight their battles of oppression and deliver them from the tyranny that they experienced. So we, as we see Jesus giving his disciples instructions on what type of animal to, to grab for this grand entry into the city as king, you have to wonder if some of them were thinking, Jesus, what are you thinking? Of all the animals that he could choose to make his big appearance, to send the message about who he was as king, he instructs them to get the cult of a donkey. In fact, one that has never even been ridden. Now, it was common for royalty to, to ride on a cult, but a donkey, it's a little out there. 
Donkeys were traditionally ridden by ambassadors of peace. There was a sense of humility that they represented. Apparently, Jesus wasn't trying to send the message that everyone longed to have received. Instead, he made his grand entrance, not a statement of authority and power, but one of humility and peace. Although this wasn't the entrance that maybe the people wanted, it was one that was prophesied about. In Zechariah 9.9, it says, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, full of a donkey. This subverts expectations of what to expect in a king. Unlike the horse's symbolism of power, authority, conquering victory, the donkey was a symbol of peace and humility. Instead of entering as a king of conquest, he enters as a prince of peace. His triumphant entry as king didn't represent the triumph that people maybe wanted or expected. It didn't show military, political, national power. His entry of triumph represented a triumph of humility over pride, of poverty over wealth, of gentleness over brutality. I wonder if we sometimes have subverted expectations of the role Jesus plays as king of our lives. Maybe we expect him to win all of our battles instantly, like a conquering king in a hostile takeover. With Jesus as our king, we might expect to instantly conquer the sin struggles that we have, for our battles with credit card debt to be eliminated, for our struggles with body image to disappear, and for our disinterest in God's word to all of a sudden be there. This is because Jesus is a different kind of ruler. He doesn't meet those expectations. He's a prince of peace. He humbly and gently meets us where we're at. And he walks with us instead of dictating us. Instead of eradicating sin from our lives, he walks with us as we struggle. He provides conviction. He gives us mercy and forgiveness. Instead of paying off our credit card debts, he leads someone into our life that can give us great financial advice. Instead of taking away that impulse to, to quit over-exercising or making your way to the bathroom after every meal, he provides someone who cares about us, who notices the struggle that we're having. Instead of instantly making us fall in love with his word, sometimes he presents just that perfect opportunity for you to grow at the rate that you need to grow. 
it can be easy for us to have subverted expectations about the role that Jesus plays as king in our lives. As we move along in the story, though, verses 35 through 38 describe the disciples laying their garments on the colt and then the people around Jesus laying their garments onto the road ahead of him. The laying of garments on the road uh, was traditionally done for kings and different civic leaders uh, to show a sign of submission or that they were willing to follow them. But it was potentially more than this in this circumstance. Although they were uh, submitting to Jesus as king, the garment being thrown here could, prevent, could potentially be uh, a talid. And that's a prayer shawl. And on the collar of the talid are the words in Hebrew, Lord of Lords and King of Kings. This would have meant that by laying the talids down on the road ahead of Jesus, that they were acknowledging that Jesus was God's promised Messiah. It was an act of worship and devotion to him. They were giving Jesus all of their praise, all of who they were. As garments were being placed on the road, uh, the crowd began joyfully praising God for all the things that they had experienced Jesus do in their lives. The passage expresses this when in, in verse 38 it says this, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. The crowd was praising Jesus. He was a king worthy of worship. In the subject of subverted expectations, one thing you might notice from our passage today is that uh, it's Palm Sunday, but there's no mention of palms. In fact, it's interesting to note that Luke's account doesn't even mention the words Hosanna. It leaves them out. The word Hosanna means save us now. Hosanna is mentioned in all the other gospels in this story. The omission of this word might be to put a greater emphasis on celebration, praise, and worship. Because the word Hosanna also had a politically charged nature to it. And, and the writer wanted to steer us away from that aspect of the story. There's a greater emphasis on praise, worship, and celebration. If we didn't know any better, if we were just reading this for the first time, no, high, no, no foresight of what was to come, we would think that these people would do anything for Jesus. That they would ride into battle, that they would sit side by side with him. But Jesus, a Messiah and King that was worthy of all this worship, would become one condemned to the cross. When Jesus would later be put on trial, this crowd would show up in numbers but not to support him. They joined in with that crowd that said, give us Barabbas. They played a role in Jesus getting condemned to the cross. 
This highlights how easy it is for us to lose our focus on worship and our devotion to Jesus. This shows us how quickly our allegiances can change, how we are easily swayed by the culture around us. When Jesus comes parading into town in the midst of the people, there is nothing but praise and worship. But within a week, that response would greatly change. Condemnation and denial. Now it can be easy for us to sit here and, and, and judge those people, but I wonder if sometimes we treat Jesus the same way in our lives. When we're in need of a savior, we give him all of our praise. We come to him on a Sunday morning and we sing a song like, you are the only king forever. With all our hearts, we sing it. We make a priority to be plugged into a Bible study because, because we know that's what we should do. We pray for our sin struggles and, and the healing of our loved ones. But when our faith clashes with culture, we just join in with the crowd. We place our allegiances, our priorities, and our worship in other things. Where do our allegiances, priorities, and worship uh, go when we're on a, a couple's vacation to Mexico or Vegas? When we're confronted with a social justice issue or politics? When we find ourselves in the vortex of the busyness of youth sports? What if we made a greater effort to give Jesus our allegiance? to make him the priority, to keep him the object of our worship in the midst of all those things? What if when we went on those long trips, we brought our Bibles with us so that we could spend time with our spouse in his word? What if on those trips we drank within moderation? What if instead of supporting a politician for whatever party he or she belonged to, we supported that person because they reflected who Christ was. What if we were to take a stand that sports would not infiltrate and take over our faith habits and faith community? It's easy for us to go from treating our king worthy of worship to condemning him on the cross. Although the crowd would eventually turn on him, as Jesus entered Jerusalem, uh, he encouraged and embraced the surrounding praise. And, and this is interesting because if we look back on Jesus' ministry up to this point, we can see a consistent thread of trying to keep a bit of a low profile. Even after performing amazing miracles as he would go from city to city, there would be a number of times where he would say, but don't tell anyone what you saw. But in this story, we see Jesus behave differently. This change in Jesus' approach is highlighted when the Pharisees tell Jesus to rebuke his disciples. In verse 40, he responds by saying, I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones 
will cry out. Jesus is saying that it is more likely for the impossible to happen than to not let the Messiah and King get the honor that he deserves. He's also saying that when the stones cry out, that Jesus is indicating that people's praise should be encouraged and not suppressed. And quite frankly, it should be a natural reaction of who they are. We should, by nature of Jesus being who he is, cry out and give him all our praise and worship. And if not, the stones will cry out in our place. Jesus subverts the expectations by going from avoiding attention to promoting praise. It was time for Jesus to reveal himself. He was the Messiah, and he wanted the response that people deserved to have to him and that he deserved to have from us. This subverted expectation should challenge us to reflect on the way that we respond to Jesus being our king. When we think about what it means to live our lives for an eternity with Jesus, for an eternity with God, with the ones who came before us, does it not make us want to praise him? How great is that? Is there any excitement within us about what he's doing in our lives? Or are we allowing stones to cry out in our place? Jesus is our king. He is worthy of our praise. He deserves to have it all the time. Not just on the one or two Sundays a month we make it to church. He deserves it when we get that green light on the corner of Blue Lakes and Poline. He deserves it when we get home from work and get to play with our kids or our grandkids or our nieces and our nephews. He deserves it when our praise, when we get to live another day, when we get to spend time with someone for another day. He's even deserving of it when you go through the line at McDonald's and they only mess up one piece of your order. <laughs> Jesus went from avoiding attention to promoting praise. He would not deny his followers the opportunity to give him praise for all that he is worthy of. Are we taking advantage of that freedom that we have in Christ? We can give him praise all the time for everything he has done for us. But I think sometimes we have a tendency to be cup is half empty Christians and, and we don't see the good that he's done in our lives. I can only imagine the energy of that parade. The, ma the Messiah in person coming down the road. I imagine it would probably be about the same as if you were to combine the sagebrush parade with the Western Day parade. Maybe less tractors. But can you imagine being there? How amazing would that experience be? But how much even more would it be amazing to be the person being honored? I don't think many of us have had that opportunity, as some of us have, where something is done for the sole purpose to honor you, to glorify you. I would imagine in those moments, 
joy, fulfillment, a job well done is what I might feel. But once again, Jesus subverts our expectations. He flips them. Instead of a response of rejoice, Jesus enters a state of sadness. As the passage concludes, it says that Jesus was entering the city and he began to weep. Was he crying tears of joy for all the love that he felt? No, that's not the case. He wept because he saw what was to come. He knew the people didn't see what was right in front of them. He wept for the future struggle that Jerusalem would face as a nation. He wept because he knew that these loyal followers of his that were singing his praise would within days turn their back on him. Jesus saw what was coming and it brought him great sadness. What he felt is sort of like seeing a friend or a loved one uh, on a collision course that you know is going to bad places. It's like watching your, your child or watching a kid uh, being chased, looking behind himself, and there's a corner or a wall right in front of him. And you're like, hey, there's a wall. You've got to look forward, only to see that goose egg, boom, after the impact. Jesus could see what was going to happen, and it made him sad. Jesus wept for the city of Jerusalem because they couldn't see what was in front of them. As followers of Jesus, we are called to do and be like him. Do we weep? Do we weep for those that can't see what's ahead of them? Do we have a heart for people who don't know Jesus? Jesus was willing to die for it. Are we willing to pray and have a conversation? There's a sadness that Jesus has um, as he makes this entry as king into Jerusalem. And it's interesting because in all the other stories, uh, the climax of the stories is the hosannas and the parade and, and the celebration. But here the climax of the story is Jesus' sadness for his people. This telling of the triumphant entry has a subverted expectation of tragedy in triumph. We find the same theme in the events that would happen later on that week. We find tragedy in a triumph when an innocent man dies a gruesome death on a cross for crimes he does not deserve so that we can be saved. The gospel is a story of subverted expectations. Looking back at today's passage, we see a story of Jesus immersed in these type of expectations. And as we reflect on our lives, it might be valuable to go back 
and see what we, the ways that we might have those subverted expectations about who Jesus is in our life. Maybe we only see Jesus as a genie that grants wishes for us. Or maybe we only see a Jesus who is all about love and grace, but we fail to see his justice and his truth. Maybe we, we view Jesus as our best friend and our buddy, but we fail to see that he's also the almighty God worthy of our reverence. Are there subverted expectations of who Jesus is that keep you from faithfully following him? Luke's account of the triumphant entry is a great reminder that Jesus works in our lives in often subverted ways. The way we think he is, he might be, but there's way more. It's also a great reminder that in the midst of tragedy, Jesus provides triumph. Maybe for some of us today, we're in the season of tragedy. We can take hope, we can find joy this time of year as we remember the triumph that Jesus has in the tragedy. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for your word and for the conviction and for the encouragement it can give us. Lord, I ask that as we long to know you more, that if there's any subverted expectations we have about who you are, that we come to see the other side, that we are willing to embrace who you are. And Lord, I also ask that you please uh, help us remember the, the triumph that you have, even in the midst of tragedy, even in the sadness, that God, you give us joy and hope and you provide us peace. We love you and it's in your name we pray, amen. Let me leave you with this blessing. Finally, brothers and sisters, rejoice. Strive for full restoration. Encourage one another. Be of one of mind. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. Amen.